scripture reading comes from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own. On my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. Does anything mean anything? I think that's the question I wrestle through. Um, because I think everyone in here, if you're honest with yourself, there's at least one thing. In the midst of a robust word like anything, there's at least one thing you cried over, you longed for, you sought Jesus for, you prayed for. And that yet, there you were. Without it, feeling ache, longing Jesus, <laughs> but you, pr where are you? And you know what's so fascinating to me is that this passage that was just read for us is coated with comfort. Everything that Jesus is saying here is with a tone and a tenor of Jesus talking to his disciples, comforting them. But there are plenty of folks, maybe even here and definitely not here, who when they read that, and especially that last line, for at least today's text, it leads to frustration rather than comfort. Well, my name is Gabe. I'm one of the pastors here. And we take seriously God's word. We take seriously the gospel and what God has done for us in and through Jesus and what he's doing today. And we take very seriously the reality of your life. If you just go out into the gallery and you begin to explore the exhibit we have on display, 
you'll know we have no qualms with asking hard questions and waiting and suffering, frustration and pain in the midst of the everyday. And I got to be honest with you. There have been moments in my own heart, in my own life where I have prayed, friends. I genuinely thought this is what Jesus wanted. I genuinely felt compelled to pray and I asked in his name. And that one thing, and the reason it's not hard for anyone in here to think of a thing or one thing, and it's probably not a small thing, that's why it comes to your mind, it was a big thing. At the very least, it was a big thing to you. And we read those prayer requests as a staff team. We know the prayer requests that have been with us for months, maybe even years. The same longings, waiting for what Jesus said to ring true. Well, I want you to know you can be honest here. And one of the greatest reasons we have encouragement to be honest, not just to plaster a, f a smile on our face, to walk in here and act like everything's okay, but when we hear the text, to feel the tension. The reason it's okay is because the gospel writers, these followers of Jesus led by the Spirit, are also very honest with how they've wrestled. When you heard this passage read, it wasn't people nodding their head with easy agreement and total understanding. And so we are invited to honestly wrestle with both what's supposed to be comfort but often can feel like frustration in our lives when we come to this text. So if you haven't already, why don't we turn in our Bibles to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Now, we find Jesus' followers here at the beginning of John 14 a bit shaken, okay, because Jesus is comforting them. The reason they're shaken has to do with what happened at the end of chapter 13. And if you've been walking with us, you might be like, Gabe, we skipped a lot of 13. We're going to come back to it later, okay, so don't worry. But what we see there is that Jesus suddenly is like, hey, I'm leaving, and I'm going somewhere that you can't follow me right now, but you will later. And they're like, wait, wait, what? Where are you going? And then Jesus says, oh, one of you is going to betray me. And then, and then Peter. Everybody saw Peter as like the strong, like the, there's, a, there's a really good evidence that they looked at Peter as the leader already, as someone who spoke with strength, who wrestled with strength, who went all in with Jesus. And then Jesus is like, oh, yeah, Peter. Peter's going to deny me. So when the rock, not Dwayne Johnson, but, you know, yeah, uh, like, but the rock there within the apostles is said to deny Jesus when the going gets tough. The rest of them are like, okay, someone's betraying Jesus, and then Peter's going to, what about the rest of us? They are shook. They're wrestling. It's, we, we need to experience the emotional dynamics at play here. Because, oh, and Jesus, he sees the look on their faces. Because this is what they want. They want to be with Jesus. They want to see his kingdom come. They want all the promises that have literally shaped their, their, their lives since they were born. Before they were born, the promises they woke up praying. All of that is meant to come and to be realized in Jesus. They have been praying for this as long as they have been. They know their grandparents have been praying for this. They left jobs. They left family. They left friends. They've been ostracized. Experienced extraordinary suffering already by the level of relational distance and dynamic. All of this. And they're getting momentum. And now Jesus is leaving. And you feel that. And then Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be shaken, disturbed. 
it's going to be okay. And the way he says that is in chapter 14, verse 1, like the second half there. We heard it read, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, this translation is helpful to a point, and it is very accurate, but it's not always the most helpful, and here's why. The word pistis there in the Greek that is translated believe is not merely meant to communicate a mental assent to ideas, as if we can just check off the box of the right information, then we will feel okay. This word also carries with it an element of trust within relationships. This is why I appreciate the way the New Living Translation actually captures this, where it reads, trust in God and trust also in me. I think that's capturing it. I think that's really what Jesus is inviting. Not just like I'm going to give you some information that you're going to know is true, although that is a part of it. More than anything, he's looking at their faces and he's saying, trust me. It's going to be okay. Trust me. We see where the disciples are at here with wrestling with the surprising turn of Jesus that he's going to a place that they're not going to be able to go to right now. And when we pray and we don't receive the answer we were looking for, you can find some similarity in the disorientation of what they are feeling here. And at times when you pray, you long, you cry out, and it seems like Jesus is far from you. This isn't just an interesting point in history. This is an insight for each and every one of us in our walk with Jesus. And honestly, that's what trust is, isn't it? Trust is what we put in between the gap when we cry out in prayer and we're waiting on his response. There's a gap between that. That's the trust. And frankly, that's where we feel the angst. And the question I want to raise for us this morning as we step into this text is why should we trust Jesus? When we don't get that one thing. Why should we trust Jesus when we don't get that one thing? When you are convinced that Jesus should want that for you. When you are convinced that Jesus should want that thing for you right now. And you pray earnestly. You lay it all out there. And then it seemingly feels as if Jesus doesn't answer to his name. Why should we still trust Jesus? Oh man, if nobody's wrestled through that question this morning, (laughs) I have to question whether we're following him. Like this is it, friends. This is central. And the more I've studied this text, the more I see the brilliance of how Jesus is guiding us in comfort, how he's really longing to meet us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our questions, in the midst of our longings. And, 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 and he doesn't necessarily give us the secret in what to want or that we want. What's really fascinating here is where we find what we want. That's what we're going to see in today's text. Because here's what's so fascinating to me and what we cannot miss. If Jesus is truly God, which we're going to come to see again as Jesus is already portrayed again. And Jesus already knows what we truly and most deeply want. Even though they're troubled, their hearts are shook, he goes right to what they're longing for. He's like, listen, 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 I'm going to prepare a place. 
You know what you long for? I know you know the scriptures. Back at the very beginning, where God created humanity, the life we were designed to live, walking with God, where there is no oppression, where there is no sadness, there's only joy, there's wholeness, there's fulfillment, there's love that saturates with meaningful work for all to do to contribute, to know the delight of being fully human. I'm going to prepare a place where that is happening. Where heaven and earth, we come to see later, is finally reunited, not separated and disjointed. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then we go to the end of the, the apocalypse of John, the revelation of John. And what is it? The new Jerusalem that Jesus has been preparing comes down. So that, he's saying, I'm going to prepare the, the, the place where you want to be, the, the thing, the life that you long for. I'm going to do that. And you know the way. <laughs> I just love Thomas. There's so much about Thomas that I really appreciate. Because he's just like, nope. <laughs> that sounds great and everything, but uh, we don't know where you're going. So how are we supposed to know how to get there? We need more Jesus, right? Give us just a little bit more. And here's, here's the deal, friends. Like, if you're here today and you've been reading Scripture, and you're like, nope. <laughs> I need a little more here, Jesus. I don't know what you're saying here. I don't know how to follow this here. You're not alone, Okay. You're not a subbar Christian. You are actually a very normal one. Okay? This is not a place to cultivate shame. It's an invitation to wrestle as we follow Jesus. And I love Jesus' response <laughs> to Thomas. It's so brilliant. It's so beautiful. It's maybe one of the most well-known passages across the Gospels. I mean, this is such a powerful response. It's not this response alone, but this response clarifies so much. It adds such so richly to so much of what Jesus is doing. It's this response that he gives to Thomas where he's like, we don't know the way. This response here has been the catalyst for missionaries to give up so much to go to another place. The people that might not know Jesus may indeed come to know Jesus. This has been the catalyst for disciples. These very ones who are listening, most who are crucified or die horrendous deaths because they will declare that Jesus himself is the only Savior and Lord. And, the, and this, is, this is crucial. This nails the coffin in universalism. People have tried to philosophize this away. They've tried to slip around it or ignore it, but there's no way. What Jesus says here is absolutely the highest order of hubris or to some of the deepest inside of heaven. And look at what Jesus says. Look with me, verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, I am... The way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What Jesus says there is you have me and that is all you need. That's it. You're looking for the way? That's me. I am the way. Now, for a Jewish person, this is crucial. I am the way. This, the way of wisdom, the halakha, throughout the sages of the Hebrew scriptures, longing for the way of wisdom, Jesus says, I am he. And you go back to the Torah, right? The, the guidance of the law of Moses and the direction on how to live the life we were designed to live with God. He goes, I am he. 
We look at the longing and the path to the truest reality of who we are. Jesus says, I am he. He goes, I am the truth. There is no falsehood in me. I don't show up as Allah over here and Jesus over here. There's not Muhammad who says Jesus didn't die on the cross and didn't rise again from the grave. And then Jesus who says I did die on the cross because I came for the cross and I did rise from the grave. There's only one consistent message. It comes exclusively through Jesus. There is no falsehood. All of the philosophers of the world have been longing for the true reality. And Jesus says I am that reality and I made the ones who long for that reality. I am the life. Oh, you long to live? I mean, not just be around, but live. That source of the very reality of life is in me. And I've come to give it. You want to be made alive? You want to stay alive? And then when you die, you want to be rised again, raised again? That's me. The very source of that, the very beginning, the catalyst, the breath of life, that's me. All of that, every aspect, this world over who's been longing for any way, any truth, any life, it's all come down to the one and only Son of God, Jesus. There is no confusion. This is abundant clarity. And why? You know, Brene Brown says clarity is kindness. You don't get more clear than this. You don't get more clear than this. I love the way that Thomas Akempis, he was a medieval theologian, writes in his classic, The Imitation of Christ. I just finished rereading it. And in it, in a couple different sections, one of the sections, he writes from Jesus' perspective. It's entitled, The Beloved. And then in response, you know, for all apprentices or disciples, they're entitled, the, or titled, The Learner. From the Beloved, from Jesus, he captures this text and writes it in a robust way. He says, follow thou me. So it's medieval, so hang with me. Okay, so more thou's and these than maybe you're used to. Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which thou must follow, the truth which thou must believe, the life for which thou must hope. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, life true, life blessed, life uncreated. And if that doesn't stir you just a little bit, I have to wonder if the life is in you. This is astounding. Is that how you see Jesus? Is that how you experience him? And I'm not trying to dismiss if you're going through a difficult moment and you're like the psalmist saying, oh, like a deer that panteth after water, I long for you. Where are you? There are seasons like that. But the very longing of that life is an indicator that you know that life. Thomas wasn't the only disciple who didn't get what Jesus was doing here. And you can't blame them, friends. I mean, they're coming from a monotheistic framework with Deuteronomy 6, the Shema being the pillar of their framework. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. They could not come to the framework that this one God might be two, maybe three, as we're going to come to see next week as well. Father, Son, and Spirit. And wrestling. To which Philip cries out, as we see here in verse 8. 
okay, Lord, just, just show us the Father, and it's enough for us. <laughs> That's enough. Just show us the Father. You know what he was wanting? He's wanting what Moses experienced, where he got to see the backside of God, where he's like, I just want to see. And God shows him it's extraordinary. This is not irrational or inappropriate. Isaiah, what he experienced in the throne room of God is he sees God on his throne. He's longing for that. He's like, God, just, or Jesus, just give us that. And Jesus goes, you, do you still not know me? Now, the, the way I was thinking this might be like is if you went back to the 1970s and you said the iPhone is the most amazing thing ever. And they said, what's an iPhone? It's a computer in the palm of your hand. And they said, what's a computer? Right? Like, you start to go down. Like, what's a wireless phone? Like, these, these movements where Jesus is extraordinarily beginning to tip his toe into the mystery that he is uniquely revealing, that the author of Hebrews says, some has been revealed through the prophets throughout time, but now uniquely through his son. There is something gloriously being pulled back on the very nature of God, and we're stepping into the mystery and the wonder and the beauty of how the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Spirit is in the Father and the Son and the Son is in the Spirit and the Father and this unique dynamic, this eternal community that later theologians would come to call the Trinity. As we grasp at the beauty, the mystery, the enigma and paradox of God who is three yet one. So of course, they wrestle. Oh, that's so beautiful, friends. And so Jesus isn't frustrated in a shaming way, but this is a common, even rabbinic way to continue to guide them in their learning. He's not frustrated in what they desire or that they desire, but he longs to show them where their desires can be met. And he makes it abundantly clear, as you heard read, no, look, you don't need to see the Father. If you see me, you've seen him. If you know me, once again, this is extraordinary arrogance or unbelievable intimacy. If you know me, you know the Father. If you've heard me speak, then you know the will of the Father. Jesus is saying, I am that vision you long for, Philip. I am enough. You say that vision would be enough? I am enough. I am God. You see, I, I am not, Jesus is saying, I am not the path to something else. I'm not the path to your best self as if you can use me as a mere example to chase after what you want. I am not a tool to get what you want. I'm not a delivery man coming with a special package. I am your fulfillment. I am not how you go about life. As if I'm some mere map. I am the prize. I am both. And Jesus is making it abundantly clear. Listen, friends, this is where all this is headed. Everything we long for is found in Jesus. Everything. And you know, that is only possible if John, what he says at the very beginning of his gospel account, chapter 1, verse 1, is true. In the beginning was God. In the beginning was God. And, 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 and the, 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 <laughs> we're going to go through that later. But the word was with God. And through this one, everything that was created, that is indeed created. If indeed 
through Jesus, everything was created that was indeed created. And everything we long for is found in him, the one and only all-powerful creator, the one and true king. As the Apostle Paul writes later in Colossians, continuing to meditate on this, writing to a church, it is through him that all things hold together. I mean, everything. And, And there are a lot of things that we think will make us whole, finally make us okay, right? Physical health, wealth, a certain kind of status, and that's shaped by your stage of life and who your peer group is and what media is informing, what status ought to be for you. It could be finding a spouse. It could be having that perfect friend. It could be having children. It could be having that child who's walked away from Jesus walk back. It could be forgiveness finally from that one person and reckon it could be justice. These are all good things, are they not? But here's the thing, a really good thing. When it creeps into being an ultimate thing, will destroy you. When it creeps, like on that black ice, you just slide just a little bit, right? You're still going to dent up your car. You thought you were just enough away from the yellow line, right? And then bam, just a little slide. When a good thing, a really good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Because, of course, those are good things. Of course, they can be excruciating when you don't get those good things. But will they satisfy you? No. The reason why is because they were not ultimately what will fulfill you. Right? You know, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Is that those who have experienced extraordinary amounts of suffering... And yet lean into Jesus as enough. Come across with some of the greatest maturity in their faith. They experience what Christians of old have called a holy detachment. When something they thought was good that was really necessary for them to be okay was held back. Or even pulled from them. And they came to realize that all I have is Jesus, and all I have is Jesus, and all I have is Jesus, and that's enough. And that's enough. You know, Julian of Norwich, she died around 1416. She's someone who saw bla- the Black Death just eradicate and go through her town. She was an anchoress, so someone who lived in isolation. It had extraordinary, severe illness, and then there came a moment in her journey through all of this, where finally she rested in Jesus. And she said what has become a key phrase for many, all will be well, all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Why? Because Jesus is where she found everything. I I look around while we were singing, and Sean and the team were doing a great job guiding us and, and, and just hearing. And I know so many of your stories as you're singing, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Some of you are in low, low valleys right now. And you're singing these words, yes, I will bless your name. Because you're holding on, just like Julian of Norwich was, just like Jesus is guiding his disciples to, that Jesus is enough, that in him everything is found. And you know what happens? 
We have to ask this question when we really rest in this. If you've been walking with Jesus for a while, like Philip and Thomas, are you beginning to explore, is Jesus your way to get everything or is Jesus your everything? Some of our greatest disappointments is because Jesus didn't get us everything. And Jesus said, <laughs> I am your everything. You see, both pathways come with extraordinary pain and heartache and difficulty and challenge, but only one will give you comfort, a peace that surpasses understanding. And when you do, here's what's also really fascinating. Verse 12, Jesus makes this extraordinary promise. It's truly, truly, right? Whenever he says this, he is making a statement based upon his authority and who he is. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's like if you really believe in me, if you trust in me, then your life's going to look like mine. You're going to do the works I do. Now, once again, this is not a goal to shame anyone. This is meant to be a litmus test that reveals our hearts. What we hold most dear will indeed shape us every time. If you are defined by contentment that's found in Jesus, you're going to show up different at work. If everything is found in Jesus, then no one can take it from you. And all, I mean, if you look at your calendar, isn't most of your calendar shaped by what you want? There is something that you want that is attached to every calendar appointment you have. Either directly or indirectly, if we take time to contemplate. Your calendar is revealing your desires. Whether it's desires of affirmation, validation, respect, consumption, When everything is found in Jesus, it's going to shape how you show up in the world. It's going to shape how you structure your calendar. And not just different. That's what I think is so fascinating. He says it's not just different. It actually will show up that you're, that you and I, we're, we're going to do greater things. Now, careful, because whenever you hear the word greater, we have the natural inclination to fill that word greater with all of our idols. Oh, greater, that means I will get to get the fame I want. That means I will get the. We so often co-opt this word greater to be another way to get our idols met. And that's why it can be so draining and so shaming, okay? So why is it greater? I think at least for two reasons as I've wrestled through the text. One, Jesus saying is greater because when he goes away, where's he going to be? We find out later he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is no longer hiding himself until the opportune time to go to the cross. He is on his throne with full authority. All things have been handed over to him. And he's reigning. So that is first. Secondly, the clarity is that much greater. All that Jesus is doing is revealing him. All throughout the gospel narratives. He's seeking to help us understand who he is, who God is. It's all revealing and Jesus is saying, it's going to be greater because I will have died, I will have rose again, and the proclamation will be a lot clearer how all of the scriptures were actually pointing to a suffering servant who would rise again, and it wasn't going to fit your expectations, but now we can proclaim that Jesus is indeed the risen Lord. So it's greater clarity and greater authority. But it won't just show up 
And how you show up in the world, it's going to show up in how you pray for the world. And this is where we circle back to where we started. In verses 13 and 14. Look with me again at the text. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Notice what Jesus is not saying. He doesn't say, ask whatever you want and I'll give it. This is not a ploy to figure out how to get your desires met and the things you're chasing. It's not, hey, here's the magic formula that if you say it the right way and you say it enough, then I'll finally give in. This isn't manipulation on a divine scale. Instead, what Jesus is doing here, and he says something so potent, so powerful, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. It's pretty astounding because, listen, friends, even later in the Gospels or earlier in the Gospels, what's does Jesus give the disciples everything they want? You just got to read that. Once again, if I'm looking at his life and I'm comparing it to his reign, he doesn't give them everything they want right when they want it. Does he allow them to struggle? Look at Lazarus. The bro died. <laughs> I mean, hey, friend. If that's how Jesus treats his friends, that's going to shape our prayers. He will often wait to give us what we need. So what does verse 14 really mean? It's all with what we've seen. Verses 1 through 13 come to land in verse 14. Here it is, friends. We get to trust that Jesus' name is enough. What does that mean? Three things here, quick. You can jot them down. One, it's rest in his authority. Whenever you use someone's name like this in the first century, you are declaring and claiming that this person has power. So there is an affirmation that Jesus is indeed who he said he is, that he is the king, that he is God. And when you call on him, you are calling upon his power to bring about work. It's not just a manipulation. It's an affirmation of who Jesus is. So you can rest in his power that when you are in a vulnerable space, his power is not far from you. Secondly, you can see when we trust Jesus' name is enough, you see his purposes as best. Whenever you use someone's name in the first century, it was meant to communicate, I am pursuing this person's values. I am going in line with their character and how they would want this to be done if they were here. And so if you pray and you call out and you experience or hear a no, Jesus is still king. I love the way that Augustine talks about this particular passage, and he says it's because Jesus is the great and true physician that we can trust that his no is still good. What do we know about a good physician? When you feel better and you're in the hospital bed and you're like, I just want to get out of here. And he's like, if you get up, it's going to cause more harm, more harm than good. I know you want to get up. I know this is driving you nuts. I know you're getting sores from laying down. But if you get up, the pain and damage you're going to do to your body is way worse than the sores. You're going to stay in bed. That's a good doctor. Hey, I got this cut, and it's about to get infected. Well, I got the rubbing alcohol. No, thank you, right? It's going to cause more pain at first, but deeper healing over the long haul. That's the kind of physician we need. 
And Jesus is way more concerned, not just about a painless life, but a whole life. Praise God <laughs> that he loves us that much. But lastly and quickly, when we trust Jesus' name is enough, we long for intimacy over all else. Once again, if everything is already found in Jesus, when we come asking for anything, what we're really asking is for him to show up. Isn't it fascinating the way this ends in both times? He says, you're going to ask in my name, and what is it? Then, I, then I'm going to send someone to give it to you, or I will get. He says, I will do it. Don't miss that language. That is a present reality. That's the aspect that he's there doing it. When you ask in his name for something to be done, you're expecting intimacy, presence, more than anything else. You see, all of this is an invitation to intimacy. Even up in verse 3, when he's going to prepare a place, he says, I'm going to bring you back where? To myself. Don't miss this. It always comes back to the intimacy, the oneness with Jesus that he's inviting us. And if everything is already found in Jesus, when we come asking for anything, when it's deferred, we can rest that he is a good physician. If we come asking and, and he actually redirects us back to himself rather than giving us the thing we thought we wanted, then we recognize that prayer isn't just about getting answers or chasing after my wants, but growing in my intimacy with him because he is enough. Such that even when you look across the book of Acts, you got followers of Jesus who are singing praises because they got to suffer for his name. That's literally the language, Acts chapter 5. We suffered for the name. Then Acts 7, you've got Stephen, the first Christian martyr. He's declaring the goodness of what God is doing in Jesus. And these religious leaders don't want to hear that Jesus is God. And you've got to come with some sympathy for them. They're wrestling through this too. But when Stephen's standing there, instead of being taken out and not being stoned, he looks up into heaven and what does he see? But Jesus, there on his throne, ready to receive him. That's all the comfort Stephen needed. And it feels daunting, friends. I'm going to, and it's absolutely absurd, an opiate to the masses. It's going to destroy your life unless Jesus is who he said he is. If he is who he said he is, then everything can be found in Jesus, and it is enough. So let me ask you this. Where do you need to trust Jesus' name is enough today? I guarantee you, if you give just a good 10 seconds to this, you'll come up with something. Where do you need to trust Jesus' name is enough today? Where are you confused in life right now? Where's your heart? And it could be around one thing or maybe multiple things, but zero and one. Where are you feeling shaken? Where are you unsettled? Where do you need to go with that one spot in your heart with that, that one thing? that you need to say, Jesus, you're enough, even if. So here's the deal, friends. We're going to practice that a little bit today. Um, what we're going to do is a little bit different. You're going to notice the front row here is uh, removed. Nobody really sits in it anyway, so I didn't feel like it was a major loss. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we are going to have some people down front. And if you need, we all need, if you're willing and God's moving in your heart to come and receive prayer, know that is not a burden to us. That is a gift to be able to pray for you. There will be people down here who want to pray in Jesus' name 
in line with his way of praying in his name over you. And here's the deal. If you come forward, I don't want you to feel a whole lot of pressure. You have to, all, you, what you can do is you can come forward and you can say nothing if you want. You say it best when you say nothing at all. No, I'm just, but when you come forward, <laughs> that's really terrible. When you come forward, <laughs> you don't have to say a thing and, and, and we will pray for you. If you do come forward, I would encourage you share one or two sentences and allow the spirit to communicate through those one or two sentences enough so that they can pray for you, okay? But it's not a burden, and we're going to do this while communion's taking place. And if the spirit of God's moving in you and you come right at the end, we'll go in the back room. There is no reason why when we gather as the people of God, we can't make space to pray somewhere, right? So don't step back because you feel like you're being a burden. Don't hold back because you don't know what to say. Allow the people of God to do the work of God over you in prayer, okay? And simultaneously, we're going to come to the table, a place where we remember that Jesus is nourishing us. That's the element of this table. It's nourishing our very depths of our souls through common broken bread and common juice. Why? Because Jesus, when he prayed, his prayer was unanswered. Father, take this cup from me. And yet it became the avenue for our very salvation. Through common broken bread, we remember his body broken. Through common juice, we remember the bloodshed that actually sets up a whole new relationship that is unbreakable because he himself.